The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that has interested me significantly over the past few years is how we designate properties and and how we identify the actual potential and presence of cultural resources on a property and how does it filter through the federal process in the United States certainly of being designated a formal property and being entered on, on the National Register of Historic Places. Today we're going to be talking about a project that is called the New Philadelphia Project that was actually registered or is in the process of becoming registered as part of the National Park System. And this is a process that I am not familiar with despite having uh, worked in this business for a very, very long time. And it is my pleasure to discuss the emergence, the research, and the forward outlook for the New Philadelphia uh, National Historic Landmark, which was dedicated in 2009. I have three very distinguished colleagues who will be discussing various aspects of them. Of, of the project and of the site and uh, the designation, as uh, we discussed earlier. My guests are uh, Dr. Christopher Fennell, Fennell, who is an anthropologist and lawyer who specializes in historic archaeology as an associate professor at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Uh, he teaches interdisciplinary seminars on racism, law, and social sciences at, also at the University of Chicago Law School. My second guest is Tara Pettit, who is the Denver Service Center Project Manager and Acting Program Manager for the New Philadelphia Resource Studies. And my third guest is Toki Boswell, who is the Planning and Compliance Division Chief of the Midwest Regional Office of the National Park Service. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, and and like I say, it's a real honor because uh, there are so many elements of this project that I want to get to, and I guess I want to start with uh, Toki Boswell. Explain to me, if you would, how the process of 
positioning a property in into the national uh, into the national park service as hierarchy or sequence or designations how does that happen because i have never known this i'm so glad to have the chance to talk about that but it's it's fascinating that um, the national park service has now been around for over 100 years last year there was a big push to celebrate our centennial as an agency and over the time of our um, our lifespan we have grown from just a handful of national park units to now I believe we have 418 as of today, somewhere around that number. And so the national park system does grow fairly regularly and sometimes quite rapidly. I'm going to talk uh, about kind of the soul behind how national park units get designated, and then I'll talk a little bit about the, the bureaucratic processes at play, too, if that works for you. Well, before you do that, why don't you give me sort of a brief history? I think we have talked about this. We've talked about a lot of national historic uh, properties and National Park Service designations. Just a little bit of history of when it started, how it was related to the Antiquities Act, and how it emerged back in the early part of the 20th century. I can do a little bit on, on that, and then we'll, uh, we'll supplement it with some of uh, the specifics about New Philadelphia. So the National Please. Park Service is um, an agency of the federal government, and we were created in 1917. Uh, pardon me, 1916. August 25th, 1916 is our birth date of creation. And the agency was created because there began to be a number of similar federal properties to be managed under the same constraints, but without an overlying bureaucracy behind it to say this is the group that should take care of all these sites. So national park units had been created um, in advance of that. We often think of Yellowstone as one of our first national parks um, created back in the 1800s, but there was not a clear management entity for that until the National Park Service was created in 1916. So since then, The agency itself has grown. The number of units has grown. Um, Units come into the system in one of two ways, either through congressional or presidential action. And there is now, at this point, um, a very, I guess, rigorous process for how that should happen. And New Philadelphia is in the middle of that right now. And how uh, how many National Park Service sites are there? This is a a great point for your listeners because there's a distinction between national parks and national park service units, national park system units. Uh, There are only about 40-some parks that are designated as national parks, and those are some of the big ones that you think of, Grand Canyon National Park, Yellowstone National Park. But the system of national parks includes all of the other designations that exist, national battlefields, national historic sites, national cemeteries, national monuments. And so when you add up all of those together, we're over the 400 mark. And each one of those units, I suppose, is broken down into subunits. And I assume that the resources of the National Park Service uh, are divided based on uh, a variety of criteria. Can you talk a little bit about that so people know um, what kind of funding and what kind of maintenance systems are appropriated for various types of properties? Just a little bit so we get an idea of that. No problem. Each of those 413, 418-odd units um, is managed under the same policies, regulations, and laws as all the rest. So 
we don't treat any of them uh, differently than the others. Uh, they all uh, get the expert service of the National Park um, Service employees and all of our great accumulated skills over the last hundred years. Administratively, we're broken up into regions, geographic regions of the country, just to um, make the management a little bit easier. Uh, so, for example, I work in the Midwest Regional Office. We have 11 states across the Midwest from Ohio down to Arkansas, all the way over to North Dakota. So we're kind of the Great Lakes and Great Plains administrative area. Uh, in the regional office, we support 61 park units uh, throughout that span of all different shapes, sizes, uh, emphasis areas, and interest to visitors. So, and, and that's really an excellent background to it. And so let's get into some of the details about the uh, new Philadelphia site. Chris, why don't you step in here and tell us a little bit about the odyssey, if you will, that went from discovering the site and easing it into uh, progressive levels of significance, if you want to call it that. And, of course, significance is a formal term for archaeology and cultural resources. But why don't you give us a little bit of the history of exploration and uh, what the site uh, started out uh, in your head as being and uh, essentially worked its way into the system in such a significant way? Well, the project's really renowned uh, amongst uh, heritage and professionals and archaeologists. Uh, this was a project where the local and descendant community were fully aware of the significance and amazing history of New Philadelphia, uh, but it wasn't very visible on a broad scale to, you know, uh, get it out to school children, get it out to a broad audience. And the descendant community, which are, you know, descendants of the families who lived within New Philadelphia, particularly the McWhorter family who founded the town site, lived both within the town and around it, and then other family members. And then there's local, local community members who live in the area now, and they're very aware of it. Um, so New Philadelphia was known to that, those communities. And in the late 1990s, uh, they really started to reach out to recruit professional researchers to come together to try to learn more and more about the details of the site, how it played out over time, the footprint of where were the buildings, where were the houses, the businesses, um, and the sort of the life cycle of the town that goes from 1836 through the late 1800s as a town. Right. And so it's... It's a really interesting project that it wasn't a number of researchers uh, looking around and saying, that looks like an interesting history, and then going to look at it. Instead, it was the community itself reached out and brought in and, and uh, kind of helped to bring together a collaborative group of historians, oral historians, archaeologists, heritage professionals to do the research. And it's been going on for about two decades now. So let's step back for a second and just place it in time and space. This is um, a Mississippi River boat town, I assume. It's, it's right on the river on the western side of Illinois. Um, tell us a little bit about the site itself, what you knew before you mounted this campaign to discover uh, the real serious archaeology of this place and how it, 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 it sort of grew uh, and became a focal point of increased exploration and, and what sort of the mystique of it is. Obviously, it is a, it is part of the National Underground uh, Railroad Network to freedom, and that's obviously a major point of it. So why don't you give us a little bit of history of the town and uh, how it came on the scene? 
Well, the town's about 42 acres in size, and it was uh, undeveloped prairie when it was planned. And its significance is that it is the first town that was planned and advanced and legally founded by an African-American in the United States. And this happens in West Illinois in 1836. And that's often very surprising to people. They would think that that event would probably happen somewhere on the East Coast on an earlier settled region of the United States. And it's, uh, it's actually located halfway between the Illinois River and the Mississippi River, so it enjoyed much of the commerce you were thinking of, Joe, of a town that might be right on the, the river side, because it was a town placed right along a dirt road where all of the farmers were moving their wagons and their animals to either go over to the Illinois River, 15 miles in one direction, or to the Mississippi, another 15, 20 miles in the other direction, and barter and trade their produce off to merchants who are along those two rivers. So it was very well situated for growing as a sort of commercial hub, and that, in fact, is the way it grew. Um, it's got an incredible history to it because the it was founded by Frank and Lucy McWhorter, and Frank McWhorter was born into slavery in South Carolina in 1777. His mother, Judah, was probably captured from one of the societies in West Africa, from like Senegambia through to Nigeria. We've never been able to locate exactly which area she came from, but she is brought into Charleston in South Carolina, purchased by a Scots-Irishman named George McWhorter, and brought to his backcountry plantation. Um, and in 1777, she gives birth to Frank there. Uh, George McWhorter is likely Frank's father. And Frank grows up as an enslaved individual on that plantation. And his life story and, and uh, Lucy's life story when they marry is just extraordinary in that it intersects with so many trajectories of American history. Uh, so it's a, you know, moving from enslavement to freedom, helping others to try to escape uh, slavery through the Underground Railroad network of freedom, um, but then also making history of their incredible industriousness and incredible intelligence of seeing opportunities to get more uh, resources to buy more of their family out of slavery. So he moves uh, as a young man from uh, South Carolina. George McWhorter moves to uh, Kentucky and establishes a new, bigger plantation there. And while Frank is there as a young man, he meets Lucy, who's enslaved in a neighboring plantation. They marry and start raising a family so that their initial sons and daughters are born into slavery as well. And by about 1817, Frank had been working so hard that he he could satisfy the labor demands of his owner, George McWhorter, for the plantation, but then find time to basically rent out his labor and skill to neighboring plantations. He also started, this is in the 18 aughts leading up to about 1812, and it's one of these intersections with American history, that in that period the United States wants to start generating their own production of armaments, gunpowder, and military materials. And, and Frank somehow is able to see an opportunity in his local sphere to tap into that. He starts mining nitre, which is called saltpeter colloquially, in local caves around the plantation. And he's able to go dig that out. It's backbreaking work, but he digs out saltpeter, takes it to a local merchant, and he starts developing additional credits that way uh, in Kentucky. He's developing additional credits by renting out his time after he's already uh, spent his entire day satisfying his own plantation labor demands. And so by that, by 1817, he has enough local credits that he can buy the freedom of either he or Lucy. And at that moment, Lucy uh, was pregnant with one of their, what would be their fourth child. Um, so they buy Lucy's freedom so that both she and her child to be born will be born 
that child will be born into freedom. And then two years later, he buys his own freedom. Uh, each of these was about $1,000 at the time. And part of the, the trajectory of their lives as they then move on to Illinois is that in their lifetimes, they will buy freedom for 16 family members at a cash outlay that would exceed $300,000 in today's currency. So it's just a story of incredible industriousness, a love of family, uh, an incredible love of freedom to, to just constantly be working to generate credits to buy another son, daughter, or grandchild out of, uh, out of slavery. When he's in Kentucky, um, and they've both got freedom themselves now, they have a, a few more children who are being born into freedom, um, he sees the next opportunity is now it's, the, you know, it was the War of 1812 generated the demand for the gunpowder, um, and then you have the War of 1812 breaking out between the United States and Britain. After the War of 1812 is done, what is now western Illinois was set aside as uh, an area called the Military Bounty Lands, which means that the federal government, working with Illinois, which becomes a state in 1818, wanted to see more settlement in the entire west side of Illinois. So they created enormous one-mile square sections that if you were a veteran of the War of 1812 or the Revolutionary War, you could get it uh, at very low cost and at very good credit terms. And then shortly after that, they opened it up to public sale. So when Frank is in Kentucky, he meets someone who had purchased a 168-acre quarter section of one of these plots in western Illinois, and he's willing to trade it to Frank for a portion of his uh, saltpeter mining operations and other credits that Frank has at that time. So in 1830, Frank, living in Kentucky, looking for new ways to generate more money to buy more of his family out of freedom, sees this opportunity in, in western Illinois as he hears about it. He purchases or trades for this 160-acre parcel that will become his farmstead, sight unseen. Uh, Illinois becomes a state in uh -huh. 1818, but when it becomes a state, it sets up a lot of laws that are very adverse to free African Americans moving into the state. One of the things you would need to show is you would have to put up a bond of $1,000 of value right. to come into the state, or the, uh, the law would say there's a danger you will be a burden upon us. So, so Frank has so, made a brilliant move in that he comes in as a landowner. So that immediately satisfies that requirement of the codes within Illinois. He moves his family in, in 1830 to western Illinois, sets up a farmstead on these 160 acres, and then he sees the next opportunity, which is at that time now in the 1830s, with all the traffic moving up and down the Mississippi and the Illinois rivers, there's a lot of opportunity that if you can create a town site, you can sell agricultural parcels for one rate, but you can sell parcels at a higher rate of return if people think this will be a lot in a block within a town that will have merchants and a lot of density to it. So he We have takes to take a break here. Um, sorry, I know it's an enthusiastic discussion and it's really exciting, but we have to take a commercial break here for a second, and we will be right back with this very fascinating discussion on the emergence of the new Philadelphia designation for a national park, and we'll be back right after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you trying to discover how to thrive in business and follow your purpose? Tune in to Entrepreneur Enlightenment. 
with host Irina Benedict. You will learn how to combine practical business strategies with spirituality so you can grow your business with ease. If you've been searching for purpose, for freedom, for fulfillment, tune in to get your questions answered. Listen live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Second Win Success, hosted by Gene Garino, is all about helping boomers catch their second wind in business and life. Most of us achieve our greatest success after the age of 50. Life has a learning curve with a few stumbling blocks along the way. As long as you stay committed to your vision and adapt along the way, you'll find the success you're looking for. Tune in to Second Wind Success every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schildenrein back with a new episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are having a fascinating discussion with three uh, extremely qualified professionals who are involved in the designation of a new national park. And uh, the site in question is the New Philadelphia site in western Illinois, which is one of the key nodes in the National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, which is obviously a major, major topic of interest to uh, American historians, archaeologists, preservationists, and we've been talking about the sort of the relatively rapid evolution of this property uh, to National Park Service uh, designations. And um, Chris Fennell has spoken for a while on how the site emerged, how the interest emerged, what the history of the site was that led it to become one of the key free black population centers of the 19th century. And I'd like to bring Toki back into this uh, and sort of ask you, uh, Toki, as someone who has been following this sort of the process itself and has been instrumental in in uh, in identifying the criteria and designating these properties. At what point did you start to say, my goodness, this place has to be uh, designated as, as a national park location or a unit, as you called it? How, how did that work? 
You know, earlier I referred to the soul of the, of the process and then the bureaucratic process that behind, behind, comes behind it. And Chris really did describe kind of how that, the soul of the descendants, the McWhorter descendants in the local community, has elevated the property into the national spotlight. So it was through the efforts of the New Philadelphia Association, a grassroots group there in town, and the residents that this site was designated as a National Historic Landmark in, uh, I believe it was 2006. That designation is important because it is the federal government's highest denotion of, of national significance of a property. Um, and that really starts us down the path of maybe considering whether or not this is a good site to be added to the national park system. The, bureaucr- the bureaucratic process that comes next is uh, that units can only be added to the national park system in one of two ways. One is by the president through the use of the Antiquities Act. Uh, presidents can designate new national monuments. That's typically limited to lands where uh, the federal government already has some ownership interest, and so it can't be used in as many circumstances as the second mechanism, which is congressional designation. Um, once uh, Congress has enough information to determine whether or not something should be added to the system, uh, a bill can be proposed, passed through the Congress, uh, both sides, House and Senate, and signed by the president uh, that would add an, a new unit and increase our numbers from 417 up to uh, an additional one. So the keys to successful designation really for new units are to have that strong grassroots efforts, which are clearly in place at New Philadelphia, and to have enough background information to make uh, the National Park Service and Congress comfortable um, to think that, yes, this would be a a great addition to the system. There are some established criteria that I could go into, but I'll I'll pause there. Thank you. And so, Tara, even on the sidelines here, I'm just curious because you have such an extensive record in following these designations and identifying criteria. And basically, I suspect you're in a position where you can reflect backward and project forward on properties being designated and how the process works. I think it's a fascinating viewpoint that you would have. So as this project emerges and as more and more details get filled in, how are you looking at it and how does your involvement get keyed into the system? Yeah, thanks. Um, so one of the things that uh, that happens, and, and in this case, the New Philadelphia town site, Congress um, directed the National Park Service to, to study the site for its uh, potential inclusion in the national park system. And they asked us, they, they've outlined various criteria that we that we use to determine and to, to um, make findings about whether it, it's suitable for our inclusion, and that's national significance, uh, suitability, feasibility, and, um, and a need for direct NPS management. And so those are, those are the criteria that our study team looked at, and, um, and in the case of New Philadelphia, the national significance was clear, Chris uh, outlined it beautifully, the, the importance of the site, the fact that, um, and, and it, was, it was designated um, a National Historic Landmark for its, its archaeological significance and, um, and its ability to provide um, uh, interesting uh, and, and important research opportunities for us. As, as one of the first um, uh, integrated towns, an opportunity to understand 
how how folks functioned side by side and and things like that. So um, so we we uh, look at that national significance. We look at the the suitability. Um, is is the site a suitable addition to the National Park Service? Um, is it a feasible addition to the National Park Service? Can the National Park Service uh, manage the site and and is there something for people to come out and see? And is there um, an interest in the site from the public? And uh, and so that's a lot of what we were doing with our site visit and our public meeting was just kind of getting an understanding of the site and gauging that interest from the public. I am really interested in that last point, and I think a lot of people are. How do you gauge public interest, and how do you balance public interest, say, with your own independent assessment, let's say, of significance or importance, how do you? How does that process work? Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the things that we do is we try and make sure that we we let folks know that the study is going on and how they can how they can participate in it, how they can provide feedback. We establish a um, a project website to uh, to be able to gather that feedback. Um, we send out letters to the landowners and local residents and work with local media and the organizations that are involved, the New Philadelphia Association, the, uh, the Archaeological Conservancy, and others to try and spread the word about the study. And then we invite feedback from the, from the public um, to get their ideas about, you know, things like uh, how to best preserve and interpret the resources at New Philadelphia Town Site, what kinds of experiences folks want to have at the town site, what they think should be done to facilitate those experiences, what the roles of the various organizations that are involved should be in the town site. You know, we want to know, do folks think that it should be a National Park Service site, or are they happy with um, the continued management of the site? Are they supportive, you know, if you're a local landowner, are you supportive of the National Park Service being next door? Um, and, uh, and, and how, you know, how we should let folks know about the site and any other ideas or comments that they might have. So do you, do you hold town meetings or do you have uh, we, formal invitations? Uh, tell me about that a little bit. We did. We did. So we, we held a site visit uh, so that we could actually, our team could actually get out to the site and see the site. And we also uh, do, we held a town meeting and invited uh, everyone to uh, that wanted to participate to participate, and again, those that weren't able to participate in person could leave their comments on our on our project website. And we we had folks from uh, it was a, a pretty incredible um, out, outpouring of support for it. Um, we we had uh, folks from all around the country, particularly descendants, that came to the to the public meeting um, from all over, and about 100 people attended the public meeting. And in this case, um, everyone that we spoke to uh, was that, that expressed an opinion was in support of it becoming a national park unit. And, Toki, I guess at some point the two of you worked together on this uh, in terms of trying to work out the uh, logistics and the formal procedures attendant to getting the uh, site, for lack of a better word, upgraded from one status to another? Absolutely. There's definitely the process. And one of the terrorist points was important, which is that we had feedback from all over the country. This is a process of designating a national park system unit, potentially, uh, which means that it, it can ask to have more than just local support. This is something we'll potentially 
be owned by all the people in the country. So we want to make that known. The role of the national park system um, and the service at this point, the role of the service is limited to say, we are evaluating this property against the criteria that Congress has established, and we're going to provide our findings. Those findings go up to the Secretary of Interior, and the Secretary gets to make a recommendation to Congress. The Secretary will take in all the information we gathered, all the public feedback, and then send a letter to Congress to say, yes, we think this is good, it meets the criteria, and you should consider designating it, or... You know, there are some challenges with the criteria that we see, and therefore we think uh, an other alternate management solution may be the most reasonable. Uh, so it's a secretarial recommendation, and then it's up to Congress to take any next steps actions. Uh, the National Park Service can't create a new unit on its own. And does all of this happen in conjunction with having the meetings and getting feedback from people like Chris who are doing the research and, and, and from the, uh, the, the community and various stakeholders? Who really are the stakeholders? I think the stakeholders would be descendants of, of the community, and they probably have taken their own initiatives to provide additional documentation that might not necessarily be professional. But, I mean, these are the descendants, and I'm just curious – as to how much they got involved in this. These study processes are the, one of the most interesting things we do as the National Park Service uh, because anytime a new study is authorized, we are um, in, instructed and encouraged to go and, and get the full breadth of information that exists out there and put it to good use to figure out who is interested and who has been involved in the past and invite them into the process to make sure that we don't miss anything so that we can take all of this great work that's already happened and all of the accumulated knowledge and provide that to the congressional folks who are going to make decisions about what should happen next. That's great. And uh, how enthusiastic were the descendants? I imagine that that to a lot of them, it's sort of like bringing their ancestors back into the world in a sense and, and providing sort of an aspect of living archaeology and, and, and living continuity for their bloodlines and, and for the achievements of uh, under, underserved minority. Uh, there. Yeah, the, yeah um, the descendants and, and those that... Um, attended our public meetings and that we had the pleasure to speak to and hear from on our project website were incredibly supportive and incredibly um, interested in, in, the, in the story of Frank McWhorter and, and what he and his family and, and the town were able to accomplish. And uh, I'm assuming that some citizens were pretty fired up about all of this and uh, probably helped you guys sort of uh, move, the, uh, move the ball, shall we say, down the field and into that nomination and designation uh, arena, I assume. And certainly what we heard from, from the folks that, um, that provided comment was their support for it becoming a national park unit. And we are going to take another break and come back and expand our discussion of this very fascinating topic, which is the designation of a National Historic Park and uh, one of the most pivotal uh, stops on the National Underground Railway Network for freedom. After these words, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the bioeconomy, tune into TerraTech with host Jim Lane. Every day, new and substantial products are in our lives. What we wear, eat, and drink in our travels and in our health. TerraTech will spotlight these products and show you where and how they are being used. Listen for TerraTech live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join the innovators and the innovations and move forward. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with our very fascinating discussion on the new Philadelphia uh, designated National Historic Park, National Park. And as we had discussed, there are a variety of uh, procedures that are involved in the designations and in the uh, sequence of events that proceed from the archaeology and from the oral uh, information and the archival records that sort of sequentially expand the reach of research and bring into prominence the potential designation of a national park and a national historic place. And uh, we've talked about all elements of this, and one of the aspects that I'd really like to get into for our audience is the uh, upgrades and the advances that have been done in the field of archaeology itself that raise the profile of sites like these and provide us with information that even 20 years ago we never would have gotten if we didn't have the types of sophisticated technologies that are at our disposal right now in doing sophisticated archaeological research. Chris, I know you were very involved in this. Why don't you talk a little bit about how technology has helped bring this site into the forefront and raised its profile? 
Well, the, the town site is uh, 42 acres in size, and by the time archaeology is starting, it had been, uh, for about one century, had been reverted to agricultural lands. So you're trying to figure out methodologies to explore, to look for small features like house sites, outbuildings within 42 acres. And we've employed everything from what we call old-school walkover surveys, looking for artifacts on the surface, uh, to the, you know, the more high-tech that's available. So um, the town site we knew coming into it probably had about, at most, 30 households and businesses like blacksmith shops, carpenters, all sorts of uh, agricultural businesses, and then the, the, the houses themselves, about 160 people. But we didn't know where within the 42 acres that had all been built out, if it was spread out evenly or clustered. So we started with a uh, pedestrian walkover survey, which is very simple and old school, and that showed us that the, the archaeological record was likely intact. And then from that, we were able to build up a program with National Science Foundation of summer field schools of doing excavations. But we only did excavations after we had as much uh, sort of survey evidence available to be as careful as possible when we dug into the ground. And so we've used satellite imagery, seeing what that tells us about the 42 acres. We've done LIDAR surveys. So this is a high-resolution laser light uh, survey of the ground surface. It gives you a micro-topographic uh, undulation picture of what the ground surface looks like. And the idea is that if you've got a buried remain of a house cellar, it will lead to a depression on the ground surface, and you can see that in this LIDAR survey. I just want to bring something up here, Chris, because uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with these remote sensing technologies. Why don't you tell us a little bit about LIDAR and satellite imagery and how they worked separately and or together to get you the type of resolution that would otherwise not be visible? Well, if you're lucky, at times you can get publicly available satellite imagery that is looking in the, uh, the infrared range. It's looking at heat release. So this is often used to show you different vegetation changes over time, and you can look through the archival record. Uh, but it also can show you where there's differential heat release because there's a buried house site or a buried compacted pathway. Um, the, the satellite imagery didn't tell us that for New Philadelphia just because of the available data. So then you can move in and instead use something. Uh, LIDAR is a laser assembly put on an airplane that flies 1,000 feet over the site, and it creates a uh, – basically, it's a three-dimensional map. It's not showing you much in terms of heat release. But by the contours of the ground surface, you often can infer from that three-dimensional map of those undulations where there might be uh, below-surface uh, disturbances. And then a next uh, fashion we used is an aerial thermal survey. So this is a power parachute. It's like a little ultralight with two people on it. One person has a very high-resolution infrared camera. This is a bit more high-resolution than what the police would use to fly over a city and see if someone's growing marijuana in their basement because there would be this enormous flow of heat coming out of a building. And we use a higher resolution than that. And what it shows you is if there's buried uh, stone foundation, it will release heat through the ground at a differential rate than the surrounding surface. So you can detect that as you fly over with an aerial thermal survey. And then we move to ground-based as well, and all of these are layering one on top of another of different ways of taking a picture of what's happening beneath the surface. So you did ground-penetrating radar as well? 
We did electric resistivity, electromagnetic, and ground-penetrating radar and layered all those together to get the richest picture we could of what's happening before we ever put a a shovel in the ground. So what you essentially are doing, and this is I think so the types of things that people really do want to know, is you use all these converging technologies to see if you can get repetitive signals. And uh, I assume that at some point you integrated all this into uh, geographic information systems plots and so that you could see where you have overlapping signals. Am I correct here? Yeah, exactly. And so these are the types of things that uh, are just sort of wowy stuff that people are interested in. I'm sorry, go ahead and, and fill out this picture for me, if you would. Well, oftentimes you'll hear of these technologies being used on a site, but without the added benefit of following it up with excavations. So sure. each of our specialists are doing their best to interpret their data as it's displayed for aerial thermal or for electric resistivity. Uh, but then the ultimate truth of whether their interpretation is right, I see a house here, or I think this is an area where there was a paddock, uh, is we have to excavate. Uh, and so New Philadelphia was terrific for that in that we had several years of summer field schools run with National Science Foundation funding uh, where we would very carefully choose where to excavate based on those layers of survey information. And then we could tell them what was actually there. You were right, it was a house. Or no, it turned out it was a lens of clay. You're, you're misinterpreting that piece of it. So right. it's a terrific education between the excavations and then the very high-tech methods we're using. Let me bring uh, Toki and and actually um, Tara back into the picture. You guys are watching this as it's going along, and I assume you're interfacing with Chris on this. And how does this factor into your decision-making process, and are you also feeding into the loop of saying, okay, why don't you guys try a certain type of technology, or why don't we do a little more archival research uh, uh, Toki, why don't you come in on that and, and, and tell us if you were involved in that sort of thing or not. Both Tara and I have backgrounds in archaeology, but it's really fascinating to see what people can do today in the modern era with all of these tools at their disposal. At New Philadelphia, the National Park Service really hasn't been as involved as you might think, simply because this is still a study property and it's not designated yet, and so there is no management authority from the NPS. Instead, we're taking in all that information and using it to try to figure out what should happen next. At our other units, however, where we do have established archaeology programs, you're absolutely correct. We try to to utilize all of the great skills at the universities um, and figure out what can we do, what should we do, how can we get more information here. I'll give one brief example. Pullman National Monument is a new unit of the Park Service as well. It's in the south side of Chicago, uh, designated just a couple of years ago. And there, what we're looking at is an industrial factory site. And so the National Park Service is working with um, uh, University of uh, Northern Michigan, pardon me, Michigan Tech, um, and their industrial archaeology program is one of the best in the country to help us figure out how did this Mm -hmm. factory site and this factory town evolve over time. So we do try to use those new tools and and, uh, organizations as much as we can. Is there anything unique about New Philadelphia that you hadn't seen in any other uh, property? Uh, does it fall into, or doesn't it fall into a particular type of category, um, Tara? I think Tara may be on mute for just a moment. We'll let her oh, pull, sorry. That, pull that back <laughs> <Thank> off. <you. laughs> we certainly Thanks. have uh, uh, explored that question in our uh, suitability criterion. That's one of the four things we have to address. Tara, do you have those notes on suitability? Yes, and, and um, it, it is 
it is significant um, for its being racially a racially integrated town and uh, the first known town that was plotted by an African American. Wow, that that is. We have a related. Pardon me. We have a related story not far up the road, also in the Midwest region, at Nicodemus. Um, some of your uh, listeners may be familiar with this. Nicodemus is in Kansas, and it was a, a free black settlement um, formed in about 1877. So this is after the Civil War, um, where people were coming to, to set themselves up for a new life. The thing about New Philadelphia is that we're pre-Civil War. It's really early in the American experiment where this integrated yes. uh, situation is happening. Yeah. Uh, I want to swing this back to Chris for a second. Chris, in terms of the technologies and in in terms of expanding the knowledge base, at this particular site, would you say that there are techniques or technologies that are emerging from here that seem to be uh, eye-openers, types of techniques that we have not really been attuned to in terms of potential that really provided a major contribution for this particular project? Well, I, I think the layering of different methods was very key, and you don't often see that at other sites. They'll be able to uh, muster up, you know, one of these methods, like perhaps LIDAR, uh, but right. the others to intersect with them. And that really informs you the most so that you're the best educated before you ever put a shovel in the ground, which will disturb the archaeological record. Um, so the more that you can do of multiple layers and comparing and contrasting those, uh, the more educated you are before you actually excavate. And I think that's a really critical element that we need to transmit to our audience at large. Archaeology's reliance on technology is becoming probably more important than ever because of disturbance, because of sustainability, and because of the fact that anytime you put anything into the ground, you're disturbing the integrity of the site. And so that uh, what Chris was talking about, sophisticated ground truthing followed on the heels of uh, sophisticated GIS uh, systems is is really the wave of the future. And I was wondering... um, uh, Tara and uh, Tara in particular, if you're seeing that there is an increased reliance on um, being cost efficient in that sense, in a way, and using high technology and doing uh, limited ground truthing to actually verify what's on the ground and and, and what can simply be preserved with a reasonable idea of certainty that that's really what it was. Are are we seeing that? Are we seeing that trend from your vantage point? In in our national parks, yes, I would say that we are. We certainly want to protect those resources as much as we can, and so um, when when we're able to uh, to understand them and be able to study them without actually having to put a, a shovel in the ground, that that's certainly very beneficial to us. And, and we yeah we um, look for ways that we can we can minimize the impact on the resources. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. I want to ask each one of you where you see the project going forward, Toki. From our part, the National Park Service's role is very clear. We're going to finish gathering our information and put together a report that gets sent to Congress. Um, we will make our findings. We've had great assistance from Chris, um, the New Philadelphia Association residents, um, and Tara and others. Um, so it'll be a, a very detailed and thorough report that goes to Congress. It's a 
look for them to take any next steps. Tara? I'd just like to echo what Toki said. Okay. And, and Chris? Well, certainly the, the, the local community, the descendants, and the researchers who've been involved, we're just amazed and heartened by all the lessons and stories that come out of the history of New Philadelphia and the McWhorters, and we would like to see those lessons uh, broadcast out and transmitted to as broad of a populace as we can. So it will be wonderful if uh, New Philadelphia becomes a part of the Park Service because they provide such a, a fabulous network of bringing people in and educating them on the kind of lessons that New Philadelphia represents. Toki, in the long run, do you think that that designation will be attributed? Hard to say. It's always uh, difficult to determine. Um, of the studies that we do, when we have positive findings, they often end up with some sort of designation. But we'll, we'll look and see. Uh, Chris, I, I thank you for your last statement because uh, make sure your listeners know, you know, the NPS mission is to conserve these natural and historic objects, provide for their enjoyment, and to keep them in place for this and future generations. Last year, we had over 300 million people visit national parks uh, for their interest in not only archaeology, but women's history, the Revolutionary and the Civil Wars, our civil rights initiatives, and all types of interests. And there's just so many opportunities for people to engage with their national parks that I hope everyone takes them up on it. And uh, finally, I guess in closing, I want to thank you guys very, very much for um, participating in this eye-opening discussion on this potential designation. And I just want to uh, inform our listenership that the types of work that are going on in places like New Philadelphia are sort of the pathway to the future in archaeology. We are going to be more doing more and more scientific research, paying more and more attention to underserved communities and to stakeholders in terms of what the plans are going forward and how we designate these properties. I want to thank you guys very much for participating in the program. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with another program in Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Thanks so much. And remember that the past is the key to the future. And we will see you again next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.